0: It's Tony Chapman, and welcome to Chatter That Matters. In this age of noise, I cut through the chaos and the confusion to focus on what matters most to your life, your career, your community, and our planet. At the beginning of every podcast, I ask an essential question. And then together, we go on a quest to mine for insights, and identify the big ideas that will help you get to where you need to go. If you're a subscriber to this podcast, you know that I begin each one by asking an essential question. Sometimes it's about your life, your health, other times your livelihood. Or is your brand getting the attention it deserves? But more often than not, we're reaching for a higher goal, and that's about our planet. Sustainability, humanity. And I have a question today that is the biggest question I've ever asked. And that is can extreme poverty be eradicated by 2030? The person that's going to join me on this podcast is a gentleman called Hugh Evans. His quest is to make this planet a better place. I met him a few years ago in, at a restaurant, and he came in with just this step and this conviction and passion. And within five minutes they said listen if you're going to set up an office in canada my agency's yours we'll do whatever we can to support you it was this it, i don't want to present it like as a prophet as a one person because this is an organization but this is someone that has done uh, so much and often with so little it's a lesson we can all learn by i could give you a list of accolades it's uh, a mile long it would take 40 minutes of the podcast but things like Forbes 30 Under 30 list, GQ Man of the Year Award for Chivalry, the Billboard magazine. Um, a Rolodex of people that say, you know, if you're making a difference and you matter, I want to be part of it. Hugh, a, a, a big introduction, but welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me on your amazing
1: podcast, Tony. And thank you for all of all that you've done to support our organization and movement.
0: So I, one of the business books I read cover to cover, which is very rare. I usually just stack on my bookshelf Was Jim Collins, built the last. And he talked about this BHAG, these big, hairy and audacious goals that sometimes when you think big and, and you put this rung in the ladder, if, if you can animate and get people excited, they'll reach for it. Well, your goal is one when I first heard, I thought it was impossible, but the more I get to know you and the organization, the more it's possible. And that is to eradicate global poverty. So we've, tell me why you decided to make that your life's mission.
1: Well, speaking candidly, the reason why I made it my life's mission was because it was a goal that inspired me when I was 12 years old. I uh, grew up in Melbourne, Australia, and was always passionate about you know, how we could solve injustice in the developing world. But when I was 14, I went to the Philippines because our school became the highest fundraising school in the country. So I was sent to the Philippines to learn about the work firsthand and there was a night in the Philippines that changed my life forever that really inspired me the following year to go and live for a year in India and work with Mother Teresa's orphanage and the projects in the slums of Delhi and seeing the enormous challenge of extreme poverty firsthand in those days 700 million people in India homeless or slum dwellers that's 39 times Australia's population at the time homeless or slum dwellers I, I realized that um no amount of traditional charity alone was gonna solve the challenge of extreme poverty.
0: But you're 12 or 13 years old, and a lot of times somebody that age would see a movie or go to a concert or read a book and say, that's changed my life. But then they kind of go back to their cricket and they go back to the curriculum and their friends, you made this as a life decision. How did you know or 12 or 13, what what gave you the confidence? Was it something your parents supported or you just came back and said that for some reason it's going to be my destiny?
1: Well, in fact, my, my, my parents weren't so supportive. I remember my mom said to me, uh, you know, you can't go to India by yourself. And, and, and I made a deal with her. I said, if I can get a full scholarship so that it doesn't cost our family anything, would you let me go? And she probably didn't think I'd get the scholarship. So she shook my hand and then fortunately I was awarded the scholarship. So I got to go to India that year. Um, and my dad actually, it's funny, I always joke with him because he didn't think it was quite a real job. He, he said, you gotta train as either a doctor or a lawyer. That's why I trained as a lawyer. And he said, and you've gotta have all that training because you need something to fall back on. And not until um, I founded my first organization, which was called the Oaktree Foundation when I was 18, 19 years old and, and Oaktree grew to become the largest youth organisation in Australia and the Prime Minister gave me this award called the Young Australian of the Year, not until that day when the Prime Minister gave me that award on the steps of Parliament House. did. My dad think it think it was worthy of anything real. So <laughs> it was it was one of those very funny moments where you
0: saw so when you get out and deliver papers like every other kid. Well, camp. I did. I had a paper <laughs> round
1: when I was twelve years old. I, I worked at McDonald's when I was fourteen and nine months. I worked at every juice bar imaginable, coffee shop imaginable. I did all the regular jobs because my dad insisted that I needed. <laughs> Every other job as well as what I was most passionate about. So I would literally spend the day at the juice bar reading Jeffrey Sachs' The End of Poverty. I remember it vividly, like while you're serving these ironic $10 juices, it kind of makes you feel like, oh my goodness, what world do we live in, you know, so...
0: And so along the way, when you founded this, this, uh, this charity, making the largest youth sort of driven organization in Australia, you met a couple of people that kind of stayed with you. Who, who, are the, uh, who are these two amigos that I keep hearing about and met along the way?
1: Well, it was really, um, I guess it was kind of almost three amigos, Simon, Mick and Wei um, became our, our co-founders of the organization. Because what happened was in 2006, the G20 was coming through Melbourne, Australia. And me and my mate Dan had this idea to run this small concert called the Make Poverty History concert that one day exploded when we got a phone call from Bono and Pearl Jam who said they wanted to headline our show. (laughs) And uh, we didn't believe it at the time. We thought it was a prank call, but sure enough, they came on first and sang Rockin' in the Free World by Neil Young. And that day, a million Australians signed on to our campaign. And and that year uh, I met Mick Sheldrick, he flew, he actually drove, I think, from Perth down to Melbourne to join our concert. Way was my dear friend who became, and Simon Moss later became the the co-founders of of Global Citizen when we were founded in 2009. And, you know, at that stage, as you know, because you met us those years, I I remember it vividly, 2010, we first met here in Toronto. at the Danforth Theater, is that
0: Mike? Remembering that correctly? No, we were the first time we met. It was just you and I was at the Rivoli. Then oh, it the Dan- right. and we sat down. And I was like trying to be so important because I ran a big agency. And who's this guy Paul? And why do I meet this guy Hugh? And that was the beginning of uh, of uh, such a great adventure.
1: Yeah, and so, and so, yeah that, that was that was a start. And 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 you know, the great thing about Global Citizen is, as you said in your introduction, the movement is more important than the individual. There's not a single individual in our movement that is indispensable. The mission is the only thing that's indispensable. You know, we've got to end extreme poverty by 2030. And by extreme poverty, we're talking about the worst form of human suffering, those that live on less than US $1.90 per day. So it's the worst of the worst, the people that would die for lack of a 30 cent immunization. And that sort of extreme poverty, we can end. You know, the world has already halved it in the last 15 years. When I was born in 1983, 52% of the planet lived in extreme poverty it's down to less than 18 percent of the world today and so we've seen amazing progress more than a billion people lifted out of extreme poverty and the, the challenge for this generation is as Nelson Mandela said in his one of his final speeches in Trafalgar Square he said overcoming poverty is not a gesture of charity he said it's an act of justice and he said this is our generation's challenge and I really believe his words this is alongside the challenges of climate change that are basically inseparable as issues because you can't really focus on human development without addressing the climate crisis and you also can't address the climate crisis without looking at the human development challenge so you're essentially talking about two sides of the same coin here these are the biggest challenges
0: so you have this north star um you can you you narrate it so well by talking about extreme poverty you put a monetization value to it Talk about as an injustice. You have people like Bono reaching out to you. How important is storytelling in all of this, so that people can they they can't afford to ignore it? it you connect with their heart versus just something that just another piece of soundbite that comes across the airwaves.
1: Well, I think I think storytelling matters because um, you know I, I I I guess having dedicated my whole life to this, I've probably learned as as much as the next person about. You know, what will it actually take to eradicate extreme poverty? And some days, you know, when you're talking about a $350 billion a year challenge, it can seem very daunting. But when you talk about it in terms of the individual child that just, you know, was immunized against polio that we met in India recently, and you realize that India is now entirely polio free because of the actions of millions of health workers, women that went door to door and delivered two drops for every child. I literally delivered two drops myself. These simple drops of the polio vaccine that keep children alive. You know, now polio is now only endemic in Pakistan and Afghanistan. It's literally been almost eradicated in almost every other part of the planet. Like, that's extraordinary story of progress. Just a few years ago, that wasn't true. You still had India with polio, Nigeria with polio. It was still rampant across so many parts of the world. So these are diseases that you can eradicate. And the link between polio and, say, extreme poverty is direct because it's global health. This is a global health challenge, as we're seeing right now with the coronavirus. Like, these are challenges that we need to strengthen health systems globally and the single drop in a child's mouth is as profound as the 350 billion dollar a year challenge
0: so so when you start personalizing it like that because when i hear 350 billion dollars they go how is that possible or when you think about all the problems that we're facing as the planet bringing it down to the individual how do you do it in a way that other individuals connect because it's one thing to talk about personalizing it, but what I've seen about the Global Citizen is you get a lot of people to take action as opposed to just sort of chatter about it.
1: Well, that 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 you just touched hit the nail on the head. That action is our currency. We always said that we would build a platform, and if folks haven't already done so, please download the Global Citizen app because that's your starting point to take action. We wanted to make creating systemic action achievable. Because coming back to my earlier frustration in India, when I talked about the scale of this challenge being unreachable, unreachable through traditional charity, yes, the individual drop of a vaccine matters, but unless we're also calling on governments to give more, unless we're also calling on corporations to look at their supply chains to consider their business practices and also give more. Unless we're looking at the the 2,150 billionaires on the planet worth ten trillion dollars and encouraging them to be more generous, then yeah, we we will never achieve the 350 billion dollar goal. But it, we we refer to it as the possible dream because it is possible. Like you can literally break down the 350 billion into individual buckets, and you can say Canada's contribution you know, should be X and Y. And and we know, for example, that Trudeau has made a commitment every year while he's in office to increase for the foreign aid contribution on behalf of the Canadian people. That's a great step in the right direction. Now, obviously he needs to move faster. We need to put a date on it. He needs to then hold um, cabinet accountable to make sure that's delivered, but it is possible. And previously, you know, here, even under the conservative government, it was the same. We saw Harper commit to the Muskoka initiative to massively increase investment into global health. So here we see bipartisanship at work. And coming back to the point you made earlier, it's all about actions being taken. If you were to boil down what does Global Citizen do, what we do is this we enable millions of global citizens to call on world leaders to make multi billion dollar pledges. To help end extreme poverty, so let me
0: let me take it into some some tactics that you do with it because you're you're very connected to this concept of music and concerts as a way as a currency for connecting and it is the language of the universe. So when you bring together. Let's take it back to year one where you were working on From what I've heard, that you had this idea of putting on this concert, this, the Great Lawn of Central Park. First time in that concert had been there for 20 years since Simon and Garfunkel. And, you know, you're young now, but you were a kid then. And I know you had a little bit of support with people like uh, Bill Gates coming into it. But you, pu- you made the impossible possible. How did you ever feel that you had the right to... Try to command at least the attention of new york if not united states if not part of the world by putting on something that had headliners like foo fighters and neil young and making it all come together i mean this, this wasn't a concert in the backyard this was central park well i guess in in year one it was
1: deeply deeply personal uh, i guess it still is now to be honest but but it was deeply personal because one i'd only my whole life i've only ever cared about can we eradicate extreme poverty and i figured that unless we can get the U.S. government to increase their commitment to eradicating poverty, then we're not going to be successful, right? It's a mission that we could kiss goodbye. So I said, I have to be able to crack it in the U.S. And then on a very personal level, having just moved with my, my wife, Taniella, we just got married that same year to New York, and we were you know, living in this tiny, tiny apartment, and our office was literally in a broom closet, at an agency on Lafayette street, literally. So we had nothing. I just knew that, that you know, that saying, if you can make it in America, you can make it anywhere. That was ringing in my head every day. And we came this close to failure every single time. Like I remember we were a month and a half out from what was supposed to be the show in September. We were a million and a half dollars short of raising the money to pull it off on the great lawn. And we didn't even have a headliner because at that stage, the Foo Fighters said that they're committed, but they didn't want a headline because Central Park is 60,000 people. They wanted to have another headliner as well. And so I was like, okay. I literally remember one night going to bed in tears, thinking, okay, the dream's over. It was really great. We worked so hard. We did our best, but it's over. And this is the way I love how the universe works. And I do believe in miracles because the next day I got a phone call Firstly, from Sumner Redstone at Viacom. And he said, come to my office. And I went over to his office at his house. And on the spot, he wrote a check for a million and a half dollars. And then half an hour later, I got a phone call from Neil Young's manager, who said, Neil's on the phone from Hawaii. He wants to speak with you. I drove to the other side of LA. And on the phone, he said, Hugh, I'm going to be your first headliner. And I was like, my goodness. We literally launched the festival a few days later. The thing that makes our festival harder to produce than most is we don't sell tickets to it. You have to earn your way in. So most people would be able to produce a festival much easier than we do. We make our lives really hard because we have to raise the money through sponsorship, right? Whereas most people would just sell tickets. We don't do that. We want to drive citizen actions. And so we give the tickets away for free in exchange for actions. So we don't get revenue from ticket sales, really. And it comes from the sponsors. So. I thought it was going to be all over, but amazingly, that at the 11th hour, it all happened. And then we finished year one, and I was so exhausted. I thought, okay, we've proven we can do it. We'll go on and do something new now. And then the next day, I got a phone call from Stevie Wonder, and he and his agent, Rob Light. Rob's like, you know, Stevie wants to headline year two. And I said, Rob, there is no year two. And he said, there is now. <laughs>
0: and That's really what happened. I got involved with you in year two, if you remember, with the Cotton Hall Foundation. This is my story about Hugh Evans and your commitment. So you were, you know, we were, you're were looking to get a major sponsor no, again, year two. That. And a couple of people had pulled out. These were on the fence. And while I got involved, we had some phone calls in the middle of the night. And I remember saying to you, Hugh, the only way you're going to get this is if you go over it and close it. And you got on a plane, literally did a twenty-four hour, I don't, whatever it takes to fly to Australia, have a two-hour meeting, and come back. And I remember hearing you saying they're in, and that you made that concept. But today, the momentum is—it's not about sponsors anymore. It's about, I guess, just purely getting to focus on what this is all about, getting people to take action.
1: We're we're super fortunate in that, you know, we we made a big bet when we started Global Citizen that we didn't want to compete with any of the other traditional charities because we thought, you know. They're all doing great work. UNICEF, Oxfam, Save the Children, Care, World Vision, you name it. They're all doing amazing work, and we don't want to compete with them. So we said, we're not going to ask citizens for their money. We want them to take action. And because of that, we had to reinvent the model of how this could be done. And our big bet was to say to brands, you know what? We want to compete with the Olympics, with Formula One. Instead of giving your money just marketing dollars to them, Give it to something that, yes, we'll get a ton of eyeballs, but will make a difference. It will actually change the world. And as you said, because you were with us at that very moment in year two, brands took a bet on us and they have now become our loyal partners. And so that's what's enabled, one, the movement to grow and us to focus on the core business, which is firstly eradicating extreme poverty and secondly, movement building to enable that. Because we need millions of citizens to call on world leaders. And that's why $48 billion has been pledged on global citizen stages to support the movement to eradicate poverty. And that money doesn't go to us. That money goes directly to the ground.
0: So just so the listeners are hearing this, you're not asking any individual to write a check. What you're doing is getting them to take action, to focus world leaders to do more and give more. And on the stage, because I've been there for every concert except the first one, you're talking about how many? Billions of dollars? $48 billion. billion. Dollars.
1: And so make it really clear to for folks who are listening we don't want your money. We want you to take action. And we believe that when you, plus your friends, plus your, their other friends, and all of us work together, if we all call on specific world leaders all at once, they have to respond. Because we've grown now to have 40 million members around the world. And so when these when these global citizens all in unison, all tweet Prime Minister Trudeau, he has to respond. When they all at the same time call Prime Minister Erna Solberg of Norway, she has to respond. Because world leaders live in democracies, by and large. And so they have to respond to the people. And this is the people saying, you know what, we care about the fact that these injustices still exist. And so they respond. And and nine times out of 10, they do the right
0: thing. How do you keep them, you keep them accountable? Because I've seen them on stage and their eyes are shining and they're crying, they're excited, they're passionate, they really feel they have a purpose as a world leader now. I mean, you've con- they've connected with the cause. How do you know when they go back and they're dealing with all the priorities of the government, all the pressures on, on you know, fiscal responsibility that they follow through on what they've pledged?
1: Well, I, I am pleased to report that of all the commitments that have been made on our stages, 98% of them have followed through. And how do we make sure they do so? Well, firstly, we do private diplomacy. We simply remind them of their commitment. Uh, we publish a report every six months about their commitment. And in the report, it gives them a traffic light. Are they green, amber, or are they red? Red is off track, amber is, you know, they have room to improve and green is they're on track. And then we give them incentives. We say to them, if you don't improve, we'll announce it at the next Global Citizen Festival that you didn't and we'll hold your feet to the fire. That's why we've had a 98% success rate. We also have the benefit of having great journalists on our board, people like Randall Lane, who's the editor-in-chief of Forbes magazine um ariana huffington's been on our board and these board members actually will publish in public publications if world leaders don't follow through so it provides a huge incentive for them to do so and i, I think that mostly world leaders want to follow through so we start from the premise of being nice and and uh, and and being collaborative and being you know off the record and having those conversations. And and because we're all trying to do the right thing, you know, we're trying to end suffering for millions of people. So we've got to assume best intentions, right? And And so-
0: You seem to be quite advanced as an organization. I I read a book one time called Army of Davids, how people are now rallying this incredible individuals and they're collaborating and using their social media and amplifying their cause. You seem to be one of the more effective organizations in saying, not only do I have 40 million citizens around the world, we can turn their whisper into a roar very quickly. That has to have some impact on world leaders as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've always got room to grow. I think that, you know, we are fortunate in that our movement continues to grow and we've become one of the largest movements in, on the planet, particularly movements committed to the sustainable development goals and and the, the cause of extreme poverty and, and tackling climate change. Um, and You know, our goal is to get to 100 million members in the next few years. And because why that number? Because we've calculated that we need a critical number of citizens in all of the OECD countries if we're actually going to have enough pressure on the world leaders to do the right thing. Um, You know, and this is not just political leaders. It's also business leaders and it's philanthropy. We're looking at all dimensions of access to capital and how can people adopt policies that are pro-poor and pro, pro-protecting the planet. Um, and so uh, we, we've got a long way to go still. And the journey is, you know, we, we, we see the next 10 years as we're calling it the decade of action and accountability, driving action in support of the sustainable development goals and hold people accountable to make sure the promises that they do in this particular historic year. 2020 are actually fulfilled.
0: I'm going to c- conclude with talking a little bit about 2020, but before I get there, I want to talk about lessons you've learned, because I think there's a, very few people are dealing with what you deal in terms of a goal, but they all have goals. they all have a lot of headwinds. There's a lot of disruption this decade. You admitted earlier in the podcast, you went to, went home that night in tears, thinking it was all over. What have you learned about yourself that you can share with others in terms of making the impossible possible?
1: I think uh, one lesson that I learned early was when it seems hardest, push forward one day more. Um, Like when it literally feels like you're at at the very end, push forward one day more. Because I think that it's often that one day more that you find the miracles happen. Um, That's probably the the biggest and most profound for me.
0: And when I look Um, at your the people that are in your inner circle, and I don't mean to present you as the king, but the inner circle global citizen, you mentioned a couple of them, some of the most influential people on the planet. How do you get them to be engaged? Because there must be, must, every day they must have a thousand requests for their time. And you want more than their name. You want more than their check. You want their intellectual and emotional capital vested in your organization. What advice can you give people to get to bring other people into a dream?
1: Well, all I'd say is always put the mission first. One of my mentors and our our chairman, Peter Murphy, he always says every time I speak to him, it's all about the mission, not about the people. So I've got to remember as a leader, it's actually not about me at all. I'm irrelevant for the sake of our mission. The mission is paramount, which means that if, if, if you're trying to enlist someone, their contribution is more important than what I'm doing. Right, I'm. I've got to be in service of bringing them on board, right? Everything is about serving others so that others can be more effective and better stewards, and I think that's enabled us to build a coalition of people, because I think everyone's started to adopt that same ethos. One great man, Hans Vesberg, who's the CEO of Verizon Telecommunications. He uh, he's been a dear friend for many many years, and he's worked with us. And a great another great man, Chuck Robbins, who's the CEO of Cisco. To pull together a coalition of CEOs who, who care about the Sustainable Development Goals and want to make a difference, and through their leadership, amazing CEOs like Ed Bastion of Delta, um, like James Quincy of Coke, like um, Vincent Roche of Analog Devices, Mark Pritchard of PNG, you know, like like um, incredible people ha- uh, like um, you know Paul Stoffels of J and J have all come to the table and said so they all want to contribute to the same mission but i think it's because the ethos that we've tried to lead with is that we're all in this together and it's not about any one individual it's about all of us and so i think i think that 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 matters as much now as it ever has because you know in a world that feels often so fractured you know uh, someone said, someone who I really respect, Richard Curtis, said to me the other day, he said that um, Richard Curtis was one of the founders of Comic Relief and Red Nose Day and he also found it was part of the Make Poverty History movement and Live Eight. He said, um, you know, these days it can be often easier to to label people good and evil and forget the grey because we often, it's easier to comprehend black and white than it is to comprehend that you know there's a murky middle and the reason why i I found that a helpful insight is that i think that the politics of today everywhere in the world has become more fragmented it's become about binaries you're either with us or you're against us you're either good or you're evil you're either you know this far to to this side of the political spectrum or this far to this side of the political spectrum. I think there's a power of building actually consensus where things like poverty and protecting the planet that truly do unite every single person, we've got to push harder to make sure we find good solutions that everyone can rally around. And I'm not saying that you'll always try to keep everyone happy. Um, this is not an exercise in implicating or greenwashing or anything of that nature because that should never ever be tolerated but I just mean that work harder to inspire people to be part of the solution don't always try to demonize other people
0: so here when you you're at this spotlight you're the the lead singer of this band and you're you're the attention that you get I see it at the with the with the world leaders and I, obviously the, uh, uh, how you've been acknowledged around the world for your accomplishments. How do you make sure that that's shared with an entire organization? Because very often the person that's the lead singer, there becomes at the times where there's resentment or there's times where they go, oh, we're, we're not all together. So what, do you, what advice can you give people to say as you start to see success, as you start realizing your goal, here's some thoughts on how you can make sure everybody feels it's a, we're, it's a collective purpose versus uh, uh, individual. Well, I
1: mean, one, firstly, acknowledge that you are useless by yourself. I, I, I really believe that. I think that, you know, we, we are fortunate at Global Citizen that we have an amazing team and you've got to acknowledge those amazing team members all the time. Um, and, you know, I'm fortunate in that from my chief of staff, Blake, through to our COO, Liza, through to Simon, through to Mick, through to Danielle, our chief growth officer, through to Lee, Sharon, Andrew, Katie, you know, we've got an incredible team around us that are just all uniquely talented in their own right and all make amazing contributions. And lead really complicated teams themselves and steward country offices in six six countries around the world. So so with that in mind, I think just start by acknowledging that you need everyone. Then praise them praise them often. Um, And be specific in your praise. Don't just say you're an amazing human being. Say what you did in your contribution to this made a real impact. Well done. And then I think that the the final piece is um, really about um, trying to nurture others to take over your role. I I do think that succession planning is really important. When I founded the Oak Tree Foundation when I was younger, we deliberately set the age where you had to retire at 26 because I didn't want to fall into founder syndrome, where you often find founders that have passed their use-by date don't know when to leave. And I think it's a real trap for any founder. So I think that I think often at Global Citizen, I have to set this up so that if I get hit by a bus tomorrow or just candidly should retire, that can be the case because the organization's stronger than the individual. So in
0: 2020, we're roaring into this... Decade and you've got some big plans and I'd love you to Share a little bit about what's going to happen this September and why You believe this is going to put a dent not only in eradicating global poverty and some of the big climate issues But maybe a dent in the universe in terms of how we work together as a humanity
1: Yeah, so having having worked on on this effort for the last 10 years we, we had our 10th anniversary in 2019 I and, and it's been a lifelong passion before that I, I had this kind of moment where I was like you know what it's great that we've had 48 billion dollars pledged on stage that's all cool and amazing and it's great that global citizens did that and we shouldn't should be really thankful for that but I said unless we're asking the real challenge of what does it actually take to end poverty and protect the planet, then it's like a fool's errand, right? It's just vanity because we could continue to go on with more concerts in Central Park, have more billion dollar pledges. But if we're not actually stepping back and saying, what will it actually take? Then what's it all for? So I said to our team late last year, I said, could we make 2020 our generation's moment where the whole world comes together on September 26th 2020 for during UN Climate Week to focus on getting really the multi-billion dollar pledges required to end poverty and protect the planet, and also the policies ne- needed to end poverty and protect the planet. So we we knew from research that it would take $350 billion a year, new money, in the 59 poorest countries to end poverty and protect the planet. And we knew that there are certain policies that must be adopted around keeping warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius, certain things that, you know, a scientific fact that we just, you can't escape. You either go for it or you don't. And so we said, okay, let's see if the whole artist community, the greatest artists in in pop artists like Billie Eilish through to Miley Cyrus through to Lizzo, the greatest artists in rock from Coldplay through to Metallica through to Red Hot Chili Peppers, the greatest historic artists like Alicia Keys and Pharrell Williams, if we could get everyone all together, united in, across four continents, eight cities all at once, could we, six weeks out from the US election, for one moment, get the world to pause and say, what action am I taking as an individual to end extreme poverty and protect the planet? And what action do we need to take over the next 10 years of the, t- of the decade of action and accountability? And we don't see this as the panacea we see it as a key moment in the movement that needs to push forward for the next 10 years. And so this September, we are gonna do that. We want it to be the most viewed cause event in history. We wanna reach three billion people across the planet all at once, united with a single message that we will end poverty and protect the planet by 2030. And we need every citizen's action leading up to it to do that. So we're gonna announce that this May, the full lineup of everyone who's involved. You can go to globalgoals.com, and start seeing who's already committed, start signing up and be part of it. But this is a moment to unite all of humanity at the moment where where humanity needs to be united more than ever before. Not just politically, but actually to tackle the world's biggest challenges.
0: So I've been talking to Hugh Evans and I always end with the three things I've learned and this is probably the toughest because there's so much I learned today. But first and foremost, the world is dividing and it's people are fortifying with moats and like-minded and social media, and me versus you, and in the middle is where the future lies. That's the first thing I learned from you. Second thing is, A great lesson for all of us is humility and generosity, that you're not the hero in the story, that the mission was the hero, the eradicating global poverty, saving our planet is what matters most, not individuals. And if you put that up front, you can bring together world leaders and individuals and millions of people taking action. And the one I like personally is one day more because there's times when we hit walls, we're running in cement, where headwinds are just blasting us off on our back feet. And just sometimes by doing that one day more, the impossible becomes possible. And speaking of possible, Hugh Evans, thank you so much for joining Chatter the Matter today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Tony. It
0: was fantastic. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to Chatter That Matters. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can connect with Tony on Twitter at Tony Chapman, through LinkedIn at Tony Chapman Reactions or visit his website, TonyChapmanReactions.com. Chatter That Matters is produced by Tony Chapman Reactions and Eye Contact Productions. I'm Dave Trafford.